welcome to this edition of Bookends, the monthly Meet the Author session from the Team Approach, featuring books written for leaders. I'm Susan Stamm, and I'm pleased to have Carol Kinsey Goman as my guest today on Bookends. Her book, The Nonverbal Advantage, helps us to understand that to utilize nonverbal communications as an effective business tool, we must bring this language to a conscious level. She provides tools that help us analyze our observations of others so we can respond in ways that build greater trust and success in relating. To order a copy of The Nonverbal Advantage, go to www.nonverbaladvantage.com. I'd now like to introduce Carol Kinsey Goman, who is president of Kinsey Consulting Services, specializing in energizing individuals and organizations to thrive in an environment of constant change. Carol is an international lecturer who provides keynote addresses and seminars for corporations, management conferences, and major trade associations. Clients include 95 organizations in 21 countries. Corporate giants such as Royal Bank of Canada and PepsiCo and major nonprofit organizations such as the American Institute of Banking and the American Society of Training and Development are Kinsey's clients. As a change management specialist, Carol assists leaders in improving productivity and meeting business goals in fundamentally unstable work environments. As an executive coach, she helps leaders project confidence, credibility, and inclusion, and to build relationships of trust. Carol has published over 200 articles in the field fields of organizational change, leadership, innovation, communication, and new employer-employee compact, the multiple generation workforce, collaboration, employee engagement, and body language in the workplace. She has been cited as an authority in media such as Industry Week, Investors Business Daily, CNN's Business Unusual, and the NBC Nightly News. Carol has authored 10 business books, including This Isn't the Company I Joined, How to Lead in a Business Turned Upside Down, The Human Side of High Tech and Ghost Story, a business fable about the power of collaboration. Carol has served as adjunct faculty at John F. Kennedy University in the International MBA program, at the University of California in the Executive Education Department, and for the Chamber of Commerce of the United States at their Institutes for Organizational Management. Prior to founding Kinsey Consulting Services, she was a therapist with a private practice specializing in short-term therapy and for behavioral change. Welcome to Bookends, Carol Ginsey Goman. Thank you so much, Susan. It is really a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, Carol, I had a, a, a great amount of fun and uh, learned just a tremendous amount from your book, and I uh, want to thank you for sharing it with us today. You know, we know as we listened to your bio just a moment ago that you, of course, were trained as a therapist, um, but we wondered if there was a particular event in your life that really made you sit up and pay closer attention to this whole science of body language. Well, as a therapist, I was trained as a therapist in the 1980s, and that's when body language was just coming in. Neurolinguistic programming, things like that were, were all part of my training as a therapist so that I could build rapport quickly, read people quickly, and help them to make the changes that they'd hired me to help them make. And, of course, so I've been using body language a long time. When I became a speaker for corporations and associations, then obviously I started noticing my own body language because I wanted to make sure 
that my body wasn't getting in the way of the message that I wanted to deliver, that it was actually helping and supporting that message rather than hindering it. But it really wasn't until I was a coach that I saw the power of body language in business. Now, not just in formal presentations. I'm a, I'm a pretty good executive coach for presentations. I can watch someone and I can say, you know, when you did this, um, something happened with the audience or you crossed your arms or, you you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was in the informal encounters that the power just hit me. As one of my CEO clients said, it's not so much what I say in the meetings, it's what I do in the hallways mm-hmm. that really matters. And people forget that. Leaders, no matter if you're leading a team, a first-time supervisor, or the CEO of an organization, the formal presentations are one piece of your work, but those interactions, those small meetings with your own staff, those chance encounters in the hallway, that's where I saw body language either really accelerating the message that you wanted to deliver or totally derailing anything you may have said in that big in that big meeting. And then, of course, when I started to do research to write this book, I saw everything that had happened since the 80s when I began studying it to now. Things like functional MRIs have, have really come into vogue to show exactly what's happening in the brain when we're delivering and receiving certain signals. Evolutionary psychology has come up to say that our first language was body language, hmm. and obviously it was to our survival benefit to know how to read somebody quickly so it's hardwired in our brain. And I'm telling you, it has been a real interesting ride researching and continuing to research this particular topic. Yeah, it, I find it absolutely fascinating and uh, certainly raised my level of, of consciousness um, I'm much more tuned in. Uh, but I would imagine that um, having someone like yourself really work with someone as a coach and, and actually follow them around and, and provide feedback would be incredibly valuable. What were it's some? It's amazing because it's behavioral based. Hmm. It's not saying, you know, people don't like you, they're getting an odd feeling from you. It's saying when you do this, Here's the message you're sending. Mm-hmm. And, and so few of us are really tuned into that. It's it's really um, you know amazing as you read this and, and you study this, you begin to start <laughs> reflecting upon you know things that you might be doing, and um, uh, it, it certainly raises your your awareness. What, what were what were some of the goals uh, of, that you you know set out when you went to write this particular work, and and how would you see you know. Um, the average manager or supervisor really being able to integrate and and capitalize on on some of what you've provided for us? Well, one of the reasons that the entire book is focused on the workplace and professional relationships, I don't go into uh, spousal relationships Mm -hmm. or dating relationships or body language with your pets, although my dog definitely reads and sends body language signals. I'm not (laughs) saying that that is important, but I'm saying, or your children, I don't go into that at all. I take a look at anyone who makes presentations, who sells to or serves a customer, who manages or leads or coaches people, who negotiates with folks, whether it's in a you know, a regular kind of negotiation or whether it's asking for a raise or asking for someone to support your idea, that whether you know it or not, your professional success is linked to your ability to decode the messages that people are sending you with their bodies as well as with their words and to be able to project 
the kind of body language that supports what you're saying. Yeah, that consistency is is really key. Um, early in your book, you share a set of tools that can really help us evaluate what we're feeling and thinking as we observe others' body clues, and you you you. Um, call this your 5C model. Would you be able to highlight this model for us, walk us through it? Yeah, I think that, that as you mentioned in the introduction, part of the re- everybody, we've been speaking body language for 100,000 years. Mm. We've been speaking body language since the day we were born. But it has been mostly a subconscious process. So what this book helps do is bring that subconscious process into awareness. It's like that joke in, in uh, Berkeley where there was a, which was where I'm from, Berkeley, California, we had a census. And uh, I noticed that in, in the paper it said that there were a million more women separated from their spouses than there were men. And I thought, <laughs> no, no, that has to be a typo. Or there are a million guys totally unaware their wives are gone. Oh, no. So it, it, it became the same kind of thing. Awareness is, is the beginning, is the key. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the problem when you're looking at somebody's body language and you're processing it subconsciously without awareness is that you make a lot of mistakes because the threats and the opportunities that were there 100,000 years ago when this first language got embedded are quite different from the threats and opportunities today. So, for instance, the first C is context, which means you cannot understand somebody's body language just from seeing their posture, which drives me nuts because magazines are always sending me snapshots of celebrities. What do they mean by that? And it's impossible to read that. I mean, you can make some very generalized statements, but you really can't be accurate. Hmm. If you see someone with crossed arms, almost instinctively, we begin to think that person's resistant. But if you look at the context of that, It may be a cold room, in which case that body language posture means I'm cold. It doesn't mean I'm resistant. There may be no arms on the chairs, in which case the body language message changes to there's no place else to put my arm. Mm -hmm. It may be that you're being emphatic. When an umpire says you're out and then somebody argues with them, he will cross his arms to say, no, I absolutely mean you're out. Mm -hmm. When a doctor says, here's the diagnosis, Oftentimes, he or she will cross their arms to say, I'm absolutely sure. If you're sitting in the front row of a large auditorium, almost everybody in that front row will have their arms crossed, not because they're resistant to the speaker, but because it's a natural protective gesture that we use when we're that exposed. So it is very much conditional. So what's happening? What's the context? The second C is clusters. You never look at one body language sign and try to read it. So if you see someone look at their watch, it could mean you are boring me to death and isn't it time to leave yet. It could also mean I got a new watch. Has anybody seen it, you know, how how gorgeous that watch is? And I want to bring it to attention. But if you look at somebody looking at their watch and then sign and then tapping their foot and then rolling their eyes, you have an entire cluster of gestures that say, someone's late, I'm really perturbed, and I'm waiting for that person. So you can read it much more accurately. But you, our propensity is to jump in on the first sign and say, well, that's what it means. Look for clusters. The third C is congruence, and that's where you're always looking about 
how well or not so well someone's gestures match their words. And we've all seen it on television, probably in, in some other encounters, where someone has said no and shaken their head yes while saying no. I've also, I remember one person I was interviewing and we were talking about empowerment in her organization. And every, she said, I'm absolutely for it. And every time she said she was for empowerment, she gave a slight shudder. It was very, very minute, but you could see it in her shoulders. Hmm. And what her body was saying, not wasn't that, wasn't that she was lying, was that she had an inner conflict. She really wanted to be for empowerment, but somewhere in her psyche, in her body, she wasn't really sure. Hmm. Now, the thing about this is, when someone's body goes in opposition to their words, <clears throat> and this is whether you really consciously are processing this or not, we all tend to believe the body. Now, we may not leave that speech saying, I don't know that body when that person, you know, said something, their arm movement was wrong. But what we'll say is that I don't feel right. There's something goofy about that person. Mm -hmm. I, there's something off track about what he or she just said. So we process that incongruence as, as very confusing, and if we have to choose one to believe, we believe the body. Consistency is the next thing, and that is it, it is much easier to understand what somebody's body posture means if you know what their baseline behavior is. So if you're ever arrested and the police have you in for interrogation, before they say, where were you on the night of September 10th, they will say, where do you live? What do you do for a living? How do you like your name? They will ask you these innocuous questions, most of which they already know the answer to. And what they're doing is not so much listening to what you say as they're watching how your body looks when you're answering non-threatening kind of generalized questions. Because when they do say, where were you on the night of September 10th, they want to notice deviations from that baseline. Now, when you work with someone, you have days and months and sometimes years to observe their baseline behavior. So when they deviate from that, you can be quite sure that something's up, that there's something emotional or something that, that happened that's of, of relevance. The funny things happen when you don't realize somebody's baseline behavior. I remember I was hired to do a speech for a, uh, an executive team, and the CEO wanted to talk to me the day before the speech, so I flew in early, had an appointment with him. We sat at a great big conference desk. I was on one end. He was at the other end. Oh, no. <laughs> Man didn't make eye contact. He never smiled. He never nodded. He never did anything that gave me any cue that I was at all on track. And as I got up from that meeting, at which he didn't rise, didn't shake my hand, hmm. and I was walking to the elevator, I thought I might as well go back to the hotel and pack my bags, because obviously hmm. I missed this opportunity. This one isn't going to happen. As I reach the elevator bank, his assistant comes running out to me, gushing about how much her boss just loved my presentation. Oh, my. And I said, he liked it. I was so astonished that it wasn't even trying to be polite. I said, what would he do if he hadn't liked it? And she goes, <laughs> Oh, he'd have gotten up and left in the middle. Oh, my. See, I had no idea that for that particular executive, his baseline behavior mm. was such 
that uh, it would look like other people's resistant or, or I don't like this idea of behavior. So understanding a baseline, to know if someone is being consistent or inconsistent is also very, very important before you jump in and judge what their body language is. And the last one, of course, is culture. There are two kinds of, of body language cues that we give out. Some are instinctive, and the instinctive ones are really controlled by the limbic brain. I'll tell you what some of those are in a second. The others are acquired, and the acquired ones are very culturally different. The instinctive gestures are things like eye dilation. We have no idea that when we look at something stimulating, exciting, or someone or something we really like, the limbic brain triggers eye dilation so that your pupils get larger. There are, and that happens regardless of culture. There are also six basic emotional expressions that are shared universally. We all look the same when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're fearful, when we're surprised, when we're angry, and when we're disgusted. Those are universal. Those are all instinctive gestures or body language cues. The acquired and the culturally influenced signals are things like hand gestures. When we in the U.S. and many other parts of the world give the okay signal, we know what that means. We, you know, we put our, our make a circle between our thumb and our first finger, and we, we give somebody the okay. Well, in many other cultures, we've just insulted them, you know, incredibly. Mm-hmm. When we give that victory, that that the two first two fingers spread, the V for victory, we've also done something very insulting in another country. When we wave, the way Americans wave, this back and forth hand wave in many countries means, no, I don't want that order, or it means it's as insulting as the single finger wave might be in in, in our culture, and that is to put those five fingers up, particularly close to the face of someone from, say, Greece. You've just done one of the most insulting gestures on the planet. Eye contact is an acquired, culturally determined gesture, that is the amount of eye contact, how much is proper, particularly in business, and this gets us into a lot of trouble, where we say he's not looking us in the eyes, he's shifty or unreliable, and he may or she may come from a culture where eye contact, particularly prolonged eye contact with someone who's your superior in business, is seen as very impolite and something one would never do. So how much, how long you look, space, I've watched people from southern Europe back up someone from northern Europe clear across the conference board because the comfort zone <laughs> from the northern European was so much farther away that when the excited Spaniard would step closer and get into that space, then the, then the Swede in this case would push back. I mean, not push back with his hand, but step back mm-hmm. to get his comfort space, at which case the Spaniard would step forward, the Swede would step back, and this tango continued clear across the conference room. But both were so involved in the conversation, they didn't even notice it was happening. And certainly touch. Touch is very culturally determined. We have a very low touch culture in the U.S., but not so when I went to work in Venezuela. When I got off the plane there, I hadn't even met the man who had hired me. He came up to me. He grabbed me in a hug. He put his arm around my shoulder. He touched my arm. 
He kept his arm around me as we walked to the car. He touched my arm often in conversation. High touch, high, high touch culture. So those things are acquired. So if you take a look at someone, at the context, at the cluster of gestures, at the congruence, whether it's matching words or not, at the consistency, that is, how deviate is it from the baseline, and where a cultural misunderstanding or nuance may take place, you will be far more accurate when you go to judge someone else's body language. Yeah, I found this extremely, extremely helpful, and I was thinking as you were talking about um, the police work and, and uh, the area of uh, content and, and how police, of course, you know, forever as part of their discipline have learned to read body language and, and in able to, you know, it has enabled them to be more accurate in, in um, you know, what they're getting from the person. Are they being truthful? And, and we, we've just for years have missed these opportunities in the, in the business world. So I, I think it's great that you're, you're helping us uh, capitalize on, on all of that learning. You, you talked I think to, if, if you do, excuse me, but if you do um, a lot of interviewing, you know, if that's your job to interview new uh, or potential employees, it's a skill that comes in very handily. And if you know how to do it, which is just begin the interview with some general conversation, people will be nervous in the beginning, but that nervousness should go away as the general conversation continues. So you get a baseline of, as they relax. Then as you ask certain questions, watch for those changes in behavior that may signal this is an area that they're having some difficulty around. Yeah, I I I uh, wondered if if you could also just give us a you know a little primer on the uh, chapter two, which you refer to as body basics. Some of the the breath and the posturings and, and leanings uh, help us uh, you know be able to uh, read some of these kinds of basic things that we would have a chance to observe as we're interacting with folks. Well, sure. If you think of how your spouse or your child looks when you see them at the end of the day and you know if they've had a great day or a bad day, one of the things that you look at first is how they hold their body, particularly their upper body. Um, the brain, the heart, the nervous system are so closely interlocked that you can tell how a person is feeling just by observing how they hold their chest. They'll either be puffed out with pride so their shoulders will be back, their chest will be out, or their shoulders will be rounded in and their chest will be concave as if they were kicked in the stomach. So just by observing that upper body, you can see a lot about how a person feels about themselves at that moment. Breath also reveals an emotional state. You know, one of the things in evolutionary psychology that we're finding out is that holding your breath is part of the freeze, flight, or fight response. In fact, freezing is the first thing we do. It's a primitive instinct that when a predator is in the area, we try to hide. So we hold our breath. Today, our predators are a little more symbolic, but you'll still see people under great anxiety or tension. It'll still cause them to hold their breath or to breathe in small, shallow breaths. So back to the police, one of the things that they'll notice on lie detectors, before they're going to tell a lie, many people will hold their breath. Hmm. Um, posture matters in business communication. When we are delivering information, whether it's, one-on-one -on -one or in a, in a large auditorium, closed postures where you pull in, where you fold your arms, where you cross your legs, all are things that make your body seem smaller. And it's almost, again, like that, that emotional try to hide, that freeze state where you're pulling in. 
And whether you're doing it because you're cold or because you're more comfortable that way, that's the message you're sending, that some, somewhere you're not comfortable or confident with, with the interchange or the, the message that you're delivering. Um, open body postures where your legs and arms are uncrossed, where your arms are out, particularly where you're using exposed palms or your arms are relaxed at the side of your body. If you watch people in your organization who are the most successful, I can guarantee you that most of them will be using open postures because when people do, they are perceived as more positive and they are more persuasive. Leanings are basically an indication and a level of liking or interest. When you lean toward another person or that contract or or something that interests you, it says, I like, I agree, or this has my attention. When you lean away, and regardless of how subtly that lean away may be, what you are signaling is, I don't like, I don't agree, or I'm not particularly interested. In fact, some people who try to dominate keep that, to keep the upper hand will simply lean back like I'm, I'm way too cool to be involved in this. <laughs> As an executive coach, one of the things that I saw at a team meeting where most of the team were male and two were female, where the women were telling me that the man who heads this meeting simply disregards them. Now, when you go to a client and say, people are saying you disregard them, uh, that's a very nebulous kind of airy-fairy thing to, to put your hands around. So I watched the meeting, and after the meeting, I when I was talking to this particular leader, I said, do you realize that when men in your organization say something, you give them direct eye contact and you lean in slightly? And when the women have a, an idea, you give them glancing eye contact and you pull back slightly. Now, when you give somebody physical behavioral cues like that and tell them what most people read in those cues, and then ask them if that's in alignment with how they want to be perceived or how they really feel, then you have something to work on as an executive coach. Yeah. Do you find it's as you, as you give people this kind of feedback, Carol, and the, the patterns are so ingrained, do you find it's really hard for people um, to, to make these changes? I think it's hard to get out of your own way often, but I always start with that person's goal in sight. So I would say to that team leader, is your goal to unify this team? Is your goal to to exclude the women because you really don't want them there and, you know, so it's going to show up somewhere, mm-hmm. um, somewhere else in, in your body language? Because suppressing a signal or two is not the same as changing an attitude or deciding that, you know, I really do want my team to coalesce. We're not going to to be effective unless we do. So I'm going to need to do some things differently. I'm going to need to look at my own patterns. Maybe I'm even have to go deeper and figure out why I'm having trouble, even though I don't admit it to myself all the time with the females on this team. So it's a place to start a dialogue. And as a therapist, the one thing that I know for sure is people don't change for others. Right. You know, I, when I help people stop smoking and they say, well, my doctor wants me to quit or my wife wants me to quit, I'll say, that's wonderful. <laughs> when you want to do something, you give me a call back. 
because it's very difficult to change for someone else. So if this isn't aligned with that leader's goal, mm-hmm. then probably he would never change that. If what he is doing is sabotaging his goals and his chance to run a successful team and then maybe to be seen as more successful and be brought up through the organization, then, yeah, he's very willing to work on it. Mm-hmm. Good, good answer, good insight. You, you've talked already just a little bit about the eyes and you talked about dilation and so forth. I, I found the section in your book where you talked about business versus social gazing really interesting and uh, very useful. How about if uh, you, you tell us a little bit about the difference between these? Yeah, the, one of the ways that I've seen this in action, and then I'll describe it, is that a, a woman um, executive new to the post said she was having a great deal of trouble with the males, not that they were not paying attention to her, it's that they were acting as if she was flirting with them. Uh-huh. And she says, I'm not flirting. I, I am totally, you know, business focused, but there must be something I'm doing that's giving off that signal. So she had pretty good, strong body language, but I noticed when she talked with someone one-to-one, and it was a man, her gaze went down instead of up. Now, here's what I mean. If you create an imaginary triangle and the base is across your eyes and the apex is your mid-forehead and you keep your gaze in that upward section, you are giving the nonverbal signal of the look of business. That's a business gaze. When you invert that triangle, so you make the base of it at your eyes, but now the point is at your mouth, what you are doing is really flipping it into a social gaze. This is where you look when you're out with your friends. This is where you look when you're flirting with somebody at a bar. When you do that in business, you subconsciously send out a signal. Now, I asked the woman when we found out why she, you know, that she was doing that, why she was doing it, and she said, you know, this is an international organization, and so many of these men have accents that I don't understand. So I'm trying to, I said, I think I read their lips to try to figure out exactly what it is they're saying. So we, we worked on a strategy where she would look at the mouth to help her get the essence of what they were saying and then move her gaze up in her reply. So it, it, and it's amazing how sometimes the slightest, change in a manager's behavior can change the relationship in a business deal. Yeah. You, uh, continuing uh, the discussion about eyes, you, you also talk uh, in Chapter 3 about blinking, and uh, I found this discussion also uh, pretty interesting. Could you help us understand the different kinds of blinking we might encounter and, and what it might mean? Sure. First of all, uh, you have to back up a little bit and talk about eye contact in general mm-hmm. because... Eye contact is instinctive, and it's connected with human early survival patterns, so that children look to attract and maintain eye contact so that they will have attention, be fed, and be cared for, which is why when someone takes their eyes off of us, whether it's at a party to check out the room or whether they're at a meeting and they're looking down to check out their BlackBerry, it feels as if they stop listening to us, that they're not interested that, and that isn't always the case. Um, you may be looking at your BlackBerry because it's something very important and you're still listening, but to the person speaking, it feels like they've been cut off. 
blinking, it's kind of another miniature way to cut people off. So that in normal, and, and there's several things that happen with the blink rate. Normal blink rate in a conversation is about six to eight blinks a minute. Under pressure, your blink rate will increase. And so it becomes a possible deception cue. So if you're looking to find liars, one of the things you might look at is increased blink rate when you ask a certain kind of a question. But if the blink lasts longer than a second, it's an unconscious many times, but attempt to block you from their sight. Now, that can happen under a couple of circumstances. It can happen because of the arrogance of the listener, you know, with their, that looking down the nose kind of thing where the eyes get look almost very sleepy and then they close their eyes for over a second. And it really means, go away, I find you totally boring and uninteresting. But it can also happen if you as a manager have announced the next round of layoffs. I, I was there watching, because I do a lot of change management speaking, and, and so I like to get to know the clients and what's happening as well as I can. So I watched this one client as she made this announcement to her group of salespeople, and I saw half the room close their eyes. And what that meant was, this is very negative information. I really don't want it. I don't want to see it. I, even when I don't want to hear it, I just want it to be gone when I open my eyes. Yeah. Now, totally unconscious. And the interesting thing was, in that room, nobody voiced that kind of concern or negativity. So sometimes a manager, if you don't pick up on body cues, thinks, well, my group's okay with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't hear any, I don't hear any complaining. Um, every, I think everybody's doing fine. If you watch their bodies, you may see they're not doing that fine, and that it would be a great time to be able to say I, something like, I know this is distressing news for you, and address that. Well, I can see how, how that also would be a very useful application if you're in a sales kind of a role to pay attention to blinking rates as well. Oh, sales roles. I think, I think great salesmen or great saleswomen absolutely, unconsciously or consciously, are also great body readers. Mm-hmm. You know, they just seem to make the right move at the right time, and you can't do that unless you are consciously or subconsciously picking up not just on what's being said, but on how the body looks, because the verbal message is the logic of the conversation or the cell, but the body is the emotional. So if you want to know how someone is feeling in a negotiation or is feeling in a sales pitch, you have to be able to read their body. Another really um, interesting area in your book is the ability to read from a person's smile whether or not it's genuine. Could you tell us about this? Sure. Well, smiles are very powerful. Babies use smiles to bond with parents. And what we found in functional MRIs is that when someone smiles at you and if later then you're remembering that person, you see a picture of that person, a section of your brain connected to the reward center will light up so that a smile is an incredibly powerful reward that probably in business we tend to forget about. We look for smiles, remember people, and again, that kind of reward center lights up. But there are smiles and there are smiles. We all have mastered the face and social smile. It's easy to produce. 
because you just move your lips. If you're looking for a real smile, what you have to do is look at the eyes. A real smile actually makes the entire face. But one of the quickest ways to look at that is see if it's crinkling around the eyes. And another thing that's almost impossible to produce consciously, only happens in a real smile, is that lowering of the inner corner of the eyebrow. So a real smile is around the entire face and around the eyes. Now in business, here's an interesting application. You watch the leader of your organization or your team as he or she greets people and usually they'll have a some sort of a smile. You can tell the level of liking by if it's a fake or a real smile for that person. How, tell us tell us just a little bit more about how how for sure we can know just by looking at the uh, the corners of the eyes. You look at the outside corner of the eyes, they will crinkle. The whole the whole face will move up. So the eyes crinkle, the the, the cheek muscles move up. The inner corner of the eyebrows go down, but if you have to look at one signal, look at the eyes. Hmm. There was a, an illustrator of children's books, and he said, if I draw a face with a smile and sad eyes, I've drawn a sad face. Wow. So the key is in the eyes. Yeah. The eyes have to crinkle. The eyes have to smile for it to be genuine. Wow. You, you, uh, you started to talk about uh, around the eyes. T tell us a little bit about the eyebrows and uh, how the eyebrows can help us to project a more positive image. The eyebrow flat, well, we, we move our eyebrows quite a bit. In surprise, of course, they go way up and they, they, they hold that position for a bit. But the eyebrow flash is one of those amazing universal signals of recognition and acceptance. And what the eyebrow flash is is a very quick, up and down of your eyebrows. Now, you have, when you start to do it, if you're playing with it on the telephone right now, it feels very weird. You have done this every day of your life. When you're walking down the street or walking down the hall and you see someone you recognize, and you see someone that you like, and you see a friend, your eyebrows will go up and down, and so will that friend in an automatic universal unconscious signal of recognition so if you want to play with this walk down the street and just do an eyebrow flash to a few people and see how they respond because i guarantee you they will either flash you back unconsciously or they will stop and think do i know that person so that's this odd look on their face but something something will happen now when you do this with intent i was brought into a national laboratory to interview some senior scientists Never met them. As I met each one, now these are not particularly touchy-feely kind of people. They're very scientific. They're very much, you know, into the logic part. But, of course, no matter where you are, you're all sending body language signals and receiving them unconsciously. So each person that I met for my interview, I greeted with an eyebrow flash. And I did it very subtly and very quickly with a smile in order to, as quickly as possible, establish rapport. You, when you do that with intent, it sends a positive and friendly message. Yeah, I thought that was a, just an excellent tip. Um, you uh, move along a little later in your book to talk about some of the hand-mouth deception clues that we can pick up. I would think that um, you know, in interviewing and, and um, in situations where you're trying to get issues out on the table in teams, that could come in extremely handy. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. When you think of how a young child, a very young child, looks 
after she said she told a lie. You know, immediately that hand goes up to cover the mouth because she knows she's just misspoken. So that impulse doesn't go away as we get older. That that just need to say, oh, my gosh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I could take it back. And the hand wants to go to the mouth. Now, obviously, even older children have realized that that's a dead giveaway, that if you're going to be a good liar, you probably don't want to cover your mouth right after you've said it. But again, the impulse is still there. We've just learned to modify it. It becomes very subtle. But any time a hand brushes the lips, touches the nose, it could be a signal of a deception. Now, again, could be because, you know, they may have an there may be many reasons to touch the lips or, or the nose. But I would say if, if you were watching President Clinton when in that famous did, I did not have sex with that woman <laughs> interview, you would be amazed if you just watched his hands. Nose touching. Hmm. I mean, the hand will go up to the mouth or the nose almost instinctively. Now, the interesting thing is if you're giving, if you're delivering a message, the audience, and this is an audience of maybe your team or even one, may touch their mouth or their nose when they think someone else is lying mm. or deceiving or not telling the truth or being dishonest in some way. Mm-hmm. So it isn't simply that that impulse is so ingrained with, with deception that we do it to ourselves when we're trying to be deceptive, but we also do it when we believe someone else is. Amazing. Really uh, useful tips uh, in terms of, uh, especially for the folks that are on the call that do presenting, which we'll, uh, I'll be asking you about in just a little bit. But before we get into that, I was really interest, interested in the insights that you shared from um, uh, Joe Nervaro, I believe his name was, who had worked for the FBI in behavioral analysis. And you talked about... Um, some of the, you know, what he had learned and talked about with regards to feet. Could you tell us a little bit about the body language of feet? Yeah, Joe works a lot with poker players right now <laughs> in body language um, techniques. And, and what he says is, if you want to see what's honestly happening with someone, look at the feet, the hands, and the face in that order. So feet are the least trained in business. This is the way I think of it. They're the least trained part of the body. Even those folks that have had pretty good presentational skill training or interview training have probably not paid a lot of attention to what their feet are doing. It's also the farthest part from the brain. So your feet will give you away very quickly. I've seen heels. If you think of a teenage boy, the way they bounce their heels to get rid of that excess energy, Uh that that kind of happy foot or or energized or, or nervous energy all, always comes out through, through that kind of a bounce. When you have had especially good news or you're feeling especially good, your toes will go up. This is if you're seated. Now, I watched in an airport as someone was talking on the cell phone to people in her family, and all of a sudden those toes went up, and I thought, you know, and she was, so she rocked back on her heels, although she was seated again. So whoever she had talked to at that point was a person that she felt especially good about. Hmm. You, the same thing in a negotiation. If someone's toes go right up, you know they just felt especially good about a point that's just been made or, some, or they think they have the upper hand. 
the same way is that when you withdraw your legs. Now, let's, if you put your legs just normally, at, you know, at your chair, and then you cross them at the ankles and you pull them back under the chair, that happens quite a bit when people are feeling negative or when they're feeling left out. There's a slide I use in when I do a presentation on this that just shows the feet of four people around a table. And depending on how those feet are angled, you can tell who's the most important and who feels left out. Because you also point at the person you're most interested in with your feet. Notice this at a party where people are seated on sofas or, or chairs next to one another, that they will cross their legs and point their upper foot toward the person they're most interested in. Interesting. Same thing in a, in a conversation, you'll notice that even if people are circled around someone, you can tell by where the feet are pointing who's the most important person in that circle. You can also tell when two people are speaking and they're fairly squared up so their feet are facing each other, and you walk up to join that conversation, if they really would prefer that you don't, as polite as they may be and regardless of what they say, they will simply turn their upper body. If you're truly to be included, they will each move their outside foot in a, in a position called triangulation, which will bring you into that triangle, and you'll know you're truly wanted in that discussion. That's great. So it sounds like if we're headed out to some sort of a networking event, as we approach people, we should we should use the the eyebrow. Uh, action, and uh, after we've flashed people with our eyebrows, if their feet don't open to us, we should just move on. <laughs> yeah. You know, networking is one of the most fun places. I often say to people, you ought to bring me in as a speaker right before you do mm-hmm. your networking, you know, piece of the, of the uh, meeting, because I could get people so in tune for how to, to gear up for that first seven-second impression that, that is so important to non-verbally when you meet someone, but definitely watching the feed is part of that. Absolutely. Well, as you concluded your chapter on feet, you told just an absolutely delightful story about John Holmes. And I was wondering, Carol, we hadn't asked you to actually read anything from your your book, but this is such a short and really fun little story. Would you mind reading uh, to us the story that's found on page 116 about John Holmes? Sure. It's most likely due to blood circulation, but it's apparently a well-known medical principle that warm feet are a sign of life. Not in every case, however, as evidenced by the 1899 deathbed story of John Holmes, who was Oliver Wendell Holmes. It seems that John fell into a coma and lay motionless for so long that caretakers wonder whether he was still alive. One nurse, finding no pulse one day, felt his feet to see if they were warm. If they are, that means he's alive, she explained to others in the room. Nobody ever died with warm feet. The small group was stunned when the motionless John Holmes, his sense of humor intact until the very end, uttered his last words. John Rogers did. John Rogers, you understand, was the first Protestant martyr in Mary Tudor's Roman Catholic reign. His feet, of course, were very warm when he died in 1555 because he was burned at the stake. Oh, my. Such a great story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's absolutely delightful. Uh, You've already uh, talked with us a little bit about, uh, you know, our first interactions with people and making a positive impact. And one of the things, obviously, that many of us do is, is shake hands. How can we improve this? 
Well, shaking hands is is an amazingly powerful nonverbal cue, something we do often without thinking about how powerful it is. Touch is the most primitive and essential form of nonverbal communication. Mayo Clinic says that premature babies who are stroked grow 40% faster than those who don't receive the same amount of touching. With adults, to touch someone for even one fortieth of a second creates a connection. You feel closer to that person. That's why, and in our culture, where we have a lack of touch for many reasons, handshakes are so important. It's acceptable touch. People also make a lot of judgments around handshakes. So if you have a weak handshake, people will think, oh, not good enough to be in sales because not forceful enough. If you have a bone crusher handshake, they'll say too overbearing. Not always true, by the way. Uh, that's how people start to judge you. Now, to create a perfect handshake, first of all, you want to initiate it whenever possible. You want to always stand when you're shaking hands. I see people stay seated and shake hands. You want to really take advantage of this. So you stand, you create positive eye contact, and positive eye contact means you look at someone in the eyes long enough to notice the color of their eyes. You smile, as genuine a smile as you can. You square your body. There are other cases where you wouldn't square off. But in this case, you want to square your body heart to heart with the other person. You want to make sure your shaking hand is free so you don't want to have your purse or your briefcase in it. You want to make palm to palm and web to web contact. Palm to palm so that you feel the total amount of skin and web to web, web is between thumb and the first finger. So you want to slide your hand all the way in there. I've had so many people say, oh, don't you just hate those people that just grab your fingertips. Somehow we just don't feel good about that kind of handshake. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure your hand is sideways. That's an equitable handshake, not on top, not underneath. You want to have a firm handshake. Again, somewhere between the, uh, the weak one and the bone crusher. And for women, it's even more important. Women are really judged on their confidence and assertiveness by the quality of their handshake, whether they know it or not. So getting a good, firm handshake for a female in business is key. Hold a tiny bit longer than you normally would. Talk before you let go. So you're holding as long as, you know, a little bit longer. You're saying it is a pleasure to meet you or what a great party this is or something. And as you then let go and step back, don't look down, because looking down is a submissive signal. So you want to either keep eye contact, shift to the left or the right, but don't look down. Hmm. Now, another thing that I do is after I finish that and I back and I take my step back, I then stop and see what the other person's going to do, because I can judge the kind of relationship that I've just developed in that short period of time. If that person's feet turn or if their upper body turns, I know I haven't got them, or they have some place they'd rather be. If they stay where they are, I know they're fine with that level of distance and comfort. If they take a step toward me, it means they are really interested and they really want to engage in a conversation and keep my attention for whatever reason. So I watch what they do after I, after I do the step back. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. 
That's great. I had hoped that we would have time, and I do believe this will probably be our last question, but a number of the folks that subscribe to Bookends are people who actually do make their living on the stage as presenters and facilitators. I would wonder if you would conclude your time with us today on some of your excellent counsel for those of us who are on the platform as speakers. Could you highlight some of the great tips that you share in your book with us, Carol? Sure. First of all, as a professional speaker, I've had to try out these techniques myself. So one of the things that I have learned is, if at all possible, step out from behind the lectern. Let pe if people, if you're going to send body language signals, let people see your entire body. They really get a lot more. Again, they're getting the emotional component of the speech. What I'd always tell any speaker is to start with the goal in mind. So if your goal is to project authority and control, then I'd say stay behind the lectern, minimize your gestures, and limit your eye contact. But if sincerity, caring, concern is part of your message, as it is with mine every time I speak, then I'm going to give you a list of guidelines that will help you get that message across. So once you get out from behind the lectern, you want to make sure you're centered so you're not rocking or shifting your weight. You want to make sure you're opening, you use open body posture, that is that your arms, if they're by your side, they're relaxed, they're not hidden, and they're not pressed too close to the body. Um, arms out and palms showing, very comfortable, very confident, very persuasive kind of gesture. Hidden hands goes back, you know, way in our prehistory that we may have you know, a rock or a club that we're going to knock somebody over the head with. That's not the case today, but that's still part of the, the problem if you have your hands in your pocket or behind your back or pressed too close to your side. Eye contact three to five seconds with various people around the audience. You want to make real eye contact, not just let your eyes skim. And then move. Our brains are programmed to pay attention to movement, but don't move constantly. What I find is I move a lot, but when I'm going to deliver a key point, I stay dead still. And I deliver that point from an absolutely still body position. Remember, I guess, at the very end that your body is either going to supplement or detract from that message. So just think through the emotional component of the message you want to deliver and help your body deliver that because those will be the signals that people will be reading. Oh, those, are, those are just excellent, excellent tips, and uh, I hope uh, many of us are able to capitalize on not only your your uh, tips for us as, as uh, trainers and facilitators, but for everyday work with our teams and as we're managing people and building relationships and selling situations. It's just been excellent information, Carol, and we'd like to thank you for sharing you know, the information from your book with us and for being our guest today on uh, Bookends. Uh, I, again, wanted to remind folks that to, uh, uh, to order a copy of The Nonverbal Advantage, you can visit Carol's website, which is www 
nonverbaladvantage.com. So again, Carol, we'd like to uh, thank you for your generous time today. We have run out of time. If we have questions for you, we will be forwarding those to you. And uh, again, Great. we'd like to thank you for, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.